In late December 2020, just before New Year's, news erupted about a pretty scary interaction that had taken place between a 10-year-old girl and Amazon's virtual assistant, Alexa. The girl had asked Alexa, via her family's smart speaker, for a challenge to do. Alexa replied by suggesting that the girl should try plugging a phone charger halfway into a wall outlet and touching the exposed prongs with a penny. The dangerous and potentially lethal penny challenge had been circulating around the web for some time, which is where Alexa's algorithm found it and identified it as a popular and therefore appropriate response to the child's request. Every so often, a story like this makes the headlines, and we're reminded that increasing numbers of children are now living, learning, and growing up around artificial intelligence, or AI. The stories aren't always as disturbing as that penny challenge example. A few years ago, there was a heartwarming incident in which a four-year-old in the UK saved his mother's life by asking Siri to call the police, and Siri responded by connecting him to an emergency dispatcher who then sent an ambulance to their home. What these events all show us, however, is just how little we really know about children's relationships with AI. What do children think about these seemingly knowledgeable and empathetic voices coming out of a growing number of their devices and toys, both at home and at school? According to Juniper Research, the number of virtual assistants in use worldwide reached 4.2 billion in 2020. EdTech Magazine has published a number of articles about teachers using AI in the classroom, turning virtual assistants into assistive technologies for kids with disabilities, or just asking them to keep track of the time. Meanwhile, we've seen a range of AI-connected children's toys hit the shelves in recent years, from smart robots and stuffed animals to the short-lived Hello Barbie. The privacy and safety implications are obviously staggering, but what about the emotional or affective implications? Do children develop feelings and attachments to the AI entities that inhabit their everyday lives? And are these AI technologies designed to treat children ethically, to respond to their feelings, their diverse needs, and their inexperience in responsible ways? Enter the Emotional AI Lab, an international research group led by Professor Andrew McStay that's dedicated to understanding the social and cultural impacts of AI technologies designed to respond to our emotions and moods. Dr. McStay is Professor of Digital Life at Bangor University in Wales and the author of the landmark book Emotional AI, The Rise of Empathic Media, published by SAGE in 2018. Along with the rest of his team at the Emotional AI Lab, he is conducting critical research on the growing array of technologies that use affective computing and AI techniques to sense, learn about, and interact with human emotional life. Their projects include explorations of how various industries, from advertising to car manufacturing, have started using AI to read and react to people's emotions and emotional states. One of their projects focuses on children and smart toys, and they've become a leading voice on children's rights when it comes to AI. Dr. McStay's cutting-edge research is published in numerous places, including two notable articles in the journal Big Data and Society. The first, entitled Emotional Artificial Intelligence in Children's Toys and Devices, Ethics, Governance, and Practical Remedies, co-authored with Gilad Rosner in 2021, as well as 
Emotional AI, Soft Biometrics, and the Surveillance of Emotional Life, an Unusual Consensus on Privacy in 2020. The Emotional AI Lab submitted a really important and timely response to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child's General Comment 25. And Dr. McStay is currently working on a new book on the topic called Automated Empathy. I'm Sarah Grimes, director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Andrew McStay about his two recent articles in Big Data and Society to find out more about his examination of children and AI toys and his larger body of research into the emotional applications and implications of AI. So let's just jump right in. What is emotional AI? Yes, I think it's probably useful, you know, to kind of to kick off with kind of a little bit of understanding of what AI is. And I think, you know, in its kind of simplest terms, it's the idea that technologies are able to do what minds do. And that involves sorting, classifying, judging. So I think, you know, this idea of emotional AI, you know, it kind of refers to technologies that use affective computing and AI to sense learn about and interact with human emotional life and i think you know that that's kind of what emotional ai is about it's about sensing it's about learning and it's about interacting with human emotion so that doesn't mean understanding what emotions are it doesn't mean that um, emotional ai feels but rather it's that ability to sense, learn and interact um, in some way, shape or form. So, you know, so in terms of kind of classic AI, it tends to be talked about in relation to either strong AI or weak AI. So strong AI is the idea that kind of um, AI will kind of have consciousness and it can be kind of fully fledged. And weak AI is kind of something else. It's much more specific. So in relation to emotional AI, it's the idea that these, te these technologies will read and react to emotion, and that will happen through a range of modalities, such as text, such as on Twitter, the voice, such as through a smart assistant, computer vision, such as through cameras, biometric sensing, such as on wearables, you know, and potentially kind of direct from the person themselves, but maybe also in relation to where that happens to be and what they happen to be doing. So I think, you know, for me, you know, this idea of kind of um, emotional AI itself, you know, we're going to get into kind of issues of toys, we're going to get into issues of children. But I think perhaps kind of, one of the first thing for listeners to be aware of is that this idea of emotional, uh, this premise of emotional AI, we begin to see this in a range of different life contexts, in a range of different situations. So that involves things such as kind of smart assistants, it involves things such as cars, games, mobile phones, wearables, toys, marketing, insurance, but even areas such as policing, education, and even at kind of national borders. So when we kind of think about this kind of overall interest in emotions, in many ways it's about optimizing emotion. In many ways, this is about profiling emotion. But again, yeah, this has taken place in all kind of different domains um, of social life. And, you know, I get it, as I think we'll probably get into, you know, this kind of raises all sorts of ethical questions. A term you use in your work to describe what these underlying technologies are doing through these processes that I really like is, quote, feeling into, end quote. Where does that term come from? And what does it mean? 
Yeah, so it draws from a long-standing interest in empathy. And yeah, and I think empathy is, it's a good way of looking at these types of technologies because when we think about, you know, what technologies are increasingly doing, they're reading, they're sensing bodies, they're reacting to. And for me, this kind of shows qualities of cognitive empathy. So what I mean by that is something quite different from sympathy. So sympathy is, you know, where, you know, we're kind of really with somebody and we kind of really kind of, um, you know, our heart is in what somebody's going through. You know, we feel that kind of heartfelt connection. But empathy and sympathy are quite different things. Um, you know, a, a, a slightly um, bleak example, but a torturer can empathize in that they know what buttons and what triggers um, to push. So empathy rather has um, a cognitive dimension, i.e. it's about reading, it's about sensing, it's about reacting, it's about placing in context of what is known about that person. And I think that that notion of kind of empathy starts to characterize what these emergent technologies are doing in terms of reading, sensing, reacting. And that certainly includes emotion, but it includes other elements such as fatigue, um, stress, and things which certainly kind of overlap with emotion, but not are not reducible to emotion. So yes, one of the reasons I use this kind of term empathy is it's slightly somewhat broader reach. I think as well, you know, in terms of you know, almost think of it from a kind of design point of view as well. You know, that when we kind of think about kind of what empathy is, we can think about designers of systems that will feel into people, but also people, and you know, as I'm sure we'll get into children, can also feel into systems to understand kind of how they work, what their function is, and kind of what synthetic psychology buttons to press kind of in the AI itself. So I think this idea of kind of feeling into is quite useful in terms of systems that feel into us uh, via cognitive means, but also how we feel into systems. Um, just to give you a kind of a slightly kind of tangible example of that, for example, in the workplace, um, in Telesail, you'll have a system that is monitoring a call worker, be monitoring the emotional tone of that call worker. It'll be monitoring enthusiasm levels of that call worker. But when that call worker begins to work out what the system is looking for, they will perform, they will behave in a way to gamify what that kind of emotional AI system is looking for. So in effect, they're feeling into systems. So we kind of have a two-way process taking place, a mutual feeling out, if you will. Your recent article in Big Data and Society, co-authored with Rosner, focuses on emotional AI in children's toys and devices. This work expands on the small but emerging literature on the Internet of Toys and shifts the focus to the incredibly important role that emotion and affective relationships play or could potentially play in children's experiences with AI toys, uh, smart toys, or what you refer to as emo toys. Can you tell us a bit more about emo toys? What are they and what do they introduce to children's culture? I can. Um, if you'll indulge me slightly, it would be useful just to have kind of a slightly retrospective look at the history of toys. So, you know, so clearly um, things such as kind of dolls and obviously toys have been around since time immemorial. But the idea of dolls and toys that are able to kind of simulate 
life processes have actually been around for some time. So, you know, it doesn't just begin with kind of this kind of overlap between AI and toys. You know, it goes back to kind of the 1920s, if not before. But for example, in the 1920s, um, the Dolly Record was able to kind of speak nursery rhymes through use of kind of phonograph. By 1950s, um, Mattel's chatty Cathy uh, was able to utter 11 phrases, including I love you. From 1970s onwards, began to see kind of more electronically oriented dolls built with transistors and built with circuit boards, and these were able to play pre-recorded messages. And by the 1980s, interactive toys were pretty well established. But I think one of the pivotal decades was the 1990s. The 1990s really saw new development. So I think whereas in the past toys were something which a child projected their feelings, projected their emotions onto. I think, you know, smart toys um, in the 1990s involved kind of new forms of mutual engagement and critically they involved involvement in the toy's emotional state itself. So these were kind of kind of semi-autonomous toys. So perhaps kind of the most famous is kind of Tamagotchi, but you know it included Furby as well. By 2010, we kind of saw the emergence of connected toys, which involve internet, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and so on. But I think for us, you know, for myself and Gilad, Gilad Rosner, you know, we're really interested in kind of this kind of overlapping between um, connected and smart toys, you know, that use kind of connected kind of protocols, use different types of sensors, use voices, use image recognition, you know, and have kind of um, early kind of self-learning algorithms are really kind of scoped to interact in new and different ways. We were interested kind of, well, what's the overlap here with kind of the trends going on in the emotional AI sector? And there are a few toys that have been kind of doing this for a while. So Sony is probably one of the big ones, Sony's iBo. So they had um, one of their kind of robo dogs out in the late 1990s and another one out in 2010s that was using emotion profiling. Perhaps one of the more kind of well-known, certainly in the West, is Anki's Cosmo. And again, that used facial expressions um, as a means by which the toy would react to a child's facial expressions. It would also recognize the child's, it's not just about reacting to the expression, but also the identity of the child as well. And I think, you know, given where we do see technologies heading, through biometrics and through emotion sensing and this kind of wider development in synthetic personalities and you know it's really complex you know in terms of you know how you study this we kind of thought well we could do a child focused study but we were mindful that people um, and fellow academics who who are better um, at kind of working with children than we were. We were, we were new to this. Um, so we thought, well, why not let's do adults? So we did kind of a quite a large body of work. We um, interviewed a kind of a range of experts, people with experts in the toys industry, people with the policy interest in toys, um, and kind of NGOs kind of working in this area. We also did a big survey in the UK. I think it was around kind of a thousand parents to kind of gauge their attitudes um, towards toys that kind of function in relation to human emotion. And I think, you know, I think there were kind of a number of kind of issues um, which came up for us. And I think one is kind of this issue of ambivalence. And ambivalence in that parents were really keen that children 
are exposed to and immersed um, and in UNCRC language have access to new and emerging digital services. So there's almost kind of a FOMO thing, a kind of fear of their children missing out. So that's on one hand, there's kind of almost kind of a a kind of slightly pro-technology approach to this. And then the ambivalence kind of pushed the other direction as well, and that there were inevitable concerns about privacy, but also as well, and this was kind of really interesting, parents are really concerned about being replaced somehow. And that means, for example, in relation to um, home assistance. So picture kind of, um, you know, kind of Amazon Alexa or um, you know, any other kind of um, voice assistant. You know, if you have kind of toy and kind of child oriented version, you know, sat in the corner of a room. It's something that could read stories without ever being fatigued. It could be a confidant um, without judging. And I think from a parental point of view, they were really concerned, um, surprisingly concerned, I think. Um, this kind of idea that they might be replaced in some way, shape or form. So that's not to be read of kind of the AIs taking over and um, that kind of thing. In short, again, I I underline that word ambivalence, that they were pulled in separate directions. In the article, you describe another recurring theme that came out of your interviews, which you call generational unfairness. What sorts of issues or concerns were your interviewees raising here? What are some examples? Yeah, in terms of you know our assessment of the technologies themselves and what came out of the the expert interview, it really was this kind of this issue of generational unfairness. And I think you know I think you know we see this kind of particular kind of in, in a climate related issue. And you know and perhaps we can just kind of expand the metaphor slightly in relation to kind of digital ecologies as well. In that these are adult built environments, they're adult processes, they're adult regulation laws. And yeah, I think, yeah, kind of a real concern from kind of the experts that we spoke to and from our own assessment of how the technologies function. This issue of generational unfairness um, was a real problem. That has roots um, in the critical literature around children. So I'm thinking in relation to kind of sharenting, you know, kind of exploitation of kind of children's digital footprints. But I think for us, you know, this is kind of growing further. This is, this issue identified in Sherrington is growing further to encompass questions about biometric privacy. And I guess kind of, you know, this kind of datafied commercialization of childhood. And, you know, possibly as well, the installation of questionable relationships between children and synthetic personalities. You know, if we take a company such as Mattel, these toys are imbued with values that reflect the brand, certain kind of gender identities, certain normative identities around kind of sexuality, jobs, and so on. So I think that, you know, when we think about the idea of synthetic personalities being imbued with these values, this is really deeply questionable stuff. And I think once we kind of start kind of emotion-based profiling into the mix, um, natural language processing, and, you know, more natural enhanced interaction between children and synthetic agents, I think that really raises issues. Um, I think quite profound issues. And I think, you know, we're just at the start of all of this. You know, I think toys such as Cosmo, you know, which are based on kind of analyzing facial expressions, they're quite gimmicky. But I think, you know, look at where kind of AI is heading in terms of, you know, the abilities to kind of react in ways that are appropriate to the questions being asked. 
I think we're in the start of something really big here. I think one of the things that we found in that paper, you know, it's really important um, at kind of um, regulatory level in terms of kind of laws that are made um, regionally and internationally. But I think um, in terms of self-regulation as well, that could be within company or could be just um, kind of larger industry standards. Yeah, there's a real important need, I think, to kind of to take on board these ambivalent issues. So I know the children in AI study is just part of a much broader research agenda of your lab, the Emotional AI Lab, which explores the social and cultural impacts of AI technologies, specifically AI that feeds on data about human emotions. What are some of the other trends and technologies you and your team are investigating right now? Yeah, so we've got a number of projects taking place, but one of the, the larger projects is cross-cultural analysis between the UK and Japan. So working with kind of a range of Japanese universities and working with a range of UK universities as well. You know, we're looking at this kind of question of kind of emotion, biometrics and sentiment analysis for that matter in a very kind of international context. But really one of the things that reasons why we're interested in the UK and Japan is that the, the philosophical context is very different. The ethical context is quite different and the social context is quite different as well. I think sometimes that's something that's really missing when you know we have these kind of kind of tech ethics based conversations that largely come at the you know kind of a Western kind of liberal um, standpoint. And of course, you know there are other regions around the world, and some of those regions are much bigger um, than North America and certainly the UK. So I think you know it's really important. I think to to have at least be sensitised. Um, to other frameworks and other modes of understanding as they relate to technology. And then, of course, you know, that expands down into kind of the different instances of where um, emotional empathic systems have been deployed. So that involves kind of things such as kind of um, smart ads um, that, you know, that we don't just look at, but they look at back at us to gauge our kind of facial reactions, possibly even body temperature as well. And then kind of change the ad themselves in relation to the responses that they're getting from the, the person or group of people looking at the ad. But one of the other um, areas that we're looking um, quite closely at is the overlap between emotion, politics, um, and disinformation, or misinformation, but particularly disinformation. You know, so to give um, some obvious examples of that, social media can get a bit emotional at times, people can get a bit heated. You know, we've all kind of heard these kind of expressions kind of such as kind of filter bubbles. But these kind of these kind of discussions about kind of news and the online environment, these are very much about sentiment analysis. It's about use of words and it's about clustering word types um, to label a particular emotional reaction, a particular, particular set of responses. But then what next? What comes next after all? Kind of, we've had kind of various kind of US elections which have involved uh, issues of kind of emotion, um, some quite famous ones in the UK. You know, we've had um, Brexit, which is the UK leaving the European Union. And these were really fine margins. So you're talking a margin of kind of the two to four percent. So, you know, in terms of kind of the role of kind of profiling technologies to kind of micro target ads and to, you know, kind of filter kind of what kind of things that people are exposed to online, it clearly played a role. 
but yeah um in terms of kind of what next for us though well you know there's all sorts of data type um and we're kind of really interested kind of what happens when we kind of input biometrics into all of this so for example in relation to voice assistants our voice assistants use third-party apps these collect data as well you know, and these are kind of apps and systems that are in the home you know kind of sat amidst kind of our you know kind of quite intimate conversations and that's not to say that alexa is listen listening into us but i think over time you know these ambient systems you know will begin to kind of feed into you know data ecologies and ways that people are segmented and profile and as soon as we get into that issue of kind of biometrics and human physiology which of course is kind of um, inextricable from emotion we're moving into kind of a new world of profiling so yeah one of the in short one of the big questions for us is what happens we when we kind of add biometrics uh, and emotion to the question of disinformation a lot of the work you do has a clear policy focus. Your research advances the idea that now is an opportune time to introduce new regulation in this area. I'm thinking specifically about your other article in Big Data and Society, published in 2020. In that article, one of your key findings was a, quote, weak consensus, end quote, among stakeholders when it came to emotional AI and privacy concerns. Can you talk a bit about this and its implications for AI regulation? Yeah, so it's an interesting paper, that one. You know, in essence, what I was interested in was, again, the use of kind of emotion-based systems um, in a range of different life contexts. And I was kind of interested in talking with kind of people from industry, um, people from a policy background, and people from the NGO sector. As... You know, I kind of did the interviews. Um, I became increasingly surprised. Um, so, for example, you know, in kind of interviewing in San Francisco and kind of some tech startups, you know, I expected it to be kind of you know friendly, but kind of kind of quite libertarian. You know, kind of um, free market, no rules. Um, you know, unfettered innovation, all that kind of stuff. And that wasn't what they were saying. Uh, what they wanted, they did actually want rules. They didn't necessarily want excessive rules, um, but they wanted rules that would apply across the sector. And I think for kind of startups, you know, they, they want to be on a level playing field with the larger um, technology BMOF. Uh, but that for me was really interesting that they wanted rules. They wanted that level playing field and they were okay with those rules being relatively tough as long as everybody abided by them you know in europe as well talking with um companies here they were kind of saying something similar that they were okay with rules um as long as they were equal and fair that was one part of all of this so more so in interesting rules from um industry and then talking with the ngo sector um, so, for example, I talked with um, EFF in the US and I talked with Open Rights Group and Privacy International um, here in the UK and Europe. And so you might think an NGO, you know, this idea of kind of profiling of kind of human emotion, you might just think there'd be a ban it all, total aversion. And they were like, well, actually, um, you know, they could see A, some interesting use cases um, and with strict, strict limitations in relation to where the data goes, who gets access to it, um, no third-party um, reusage, all that kind of thing. But I think, you know, NGOs and people kind of who work for these organizations 
typically pretty interested in technology and what it can do and social benefits. And so from the policy area, you know, obviously they've got a real interest in kind of um, ethics such as kind of privacy and kind of related topics. But again, they were kind of quite open to kind of both the kind of industry standpoint, but also kind of the more critical kind of NGO standpoint. So what it seemed to me that is that there is kind of a consensus of sorts between each of these stakeholder groups. Now, the motivations for each of these actors are a little bit different, but it seems to me that there's almost kind of a temporary alignment between these um, areas, which basically means that now is a really, really good time um, to start kind of regulating in the area um, of emotion recognition, emotional AI, and I guess kind of wider kind of automated empathy systems. And we're doing that in Europe. We've just had, um, we've had the proposed AI regulations. So that's an addition to the general data protection regulation, which is the large kind of data protection implement that kind of spans Europe. Um, that's going to be extended with um, an AI regulation. We've seen the proposed version of that Right at the top is Article 1, kind of discussing emotion recognition. So it seems like that there is kind of a move to kind of actually kind of focusing on emotion recognition now. And I think, yeah, possibly because of this kind of weak consensus and this kind of temporary alignment. I'm going to circle back to kids now. The United Nations recently adopted a new general comment confirming and outlining how children's rights apply in the digital environment. I know you're very familiar with this development, as your lab submitted a response to the UNCRC's public consultation. Can you please tell us about some of the issues outlined in that response? I think, yeah, for, for our own submission, you know, we, we focused in particular on the question of emotion. We, we kind of thought others are much better equipped to offer kind of wider conversation. Yeah, I was focused on emotion. You know, there were kind of a number of areas that we kind of really kind of foregrounded and one was about relationships and we really kind of um, wanted to flag that products and of course the people and organizations that build these products shouldn't abuse the trust of children and their willingness to engage with objects or non-human personalities and i think that issue of kind of trust you know, with kind of the obvious kind of offshoots of kind of manipulation and so on. There seems to be kind of such risk for us there. That was kind of something that we really wanted to flag. But, you know, there are kind of really thorny issues as well, which we kind of highlighted, such as, you know, what, ha what actually happens if kind of manufacturers do detect um, something? Let's just kind of fast forward kind of five, ten years down the line that, you know, these systems do exist in a child's bedroom. What if they do detect ill mental health, for example? What if they do detect child abuse? That raises really, really, really difficult questions. But more broadly, you know, we're interested in kind of issues of kind of stereotypes. And again, this is the synthetic personalities point. And that stereotypes and assumptions about emotion, you know, they really need to be considered in the design of these objects. So, you know, for example, girls as passive, boys as active. You know, these are just assumptions that have long been built um, into toys. But again, when we're thinking about, you know, kind of systems that children are feeling into and in reverse kind of feeling into children, you know, the, these stereotyping issues, um, you know, become quite acute 
I think. But in relation to issues of play, you know, we kind of hope that, you know, if these systems are to be developed with kind of the stricter, stricter of controls, you know, this should be used to amplify a child's imagination. And at present, you know, kind of the toys and services that we've kind of surveyed so far, we don't really see that the toys seem to be doing that. So for example, um, we talked about Anki, A-N-K-I, which is a company, and their toy Cosmo. You know, it's just a little robot digger. Um, it has a cute little face on the front. It kind of reads the facial expressions of children, and it kind of it, it behaves cutely in relation to child behavior. I'm not sure what that does for imagination. You know, if these kind of systems are to kind of be developed, it would be interesting and perhaps useful to kind of positively kind of interact with a child's imagination. I think, you know, when, when GC25 came out, you know, once once everybody's input had been digested and they kind of wrote up the, um, kind of the findings and the, the original final GC25 came out, really pleased to see that, you know, emotion was in there. Now that the general comment 25 has been adopted, do you think it'll have any impact on the issues you've raised around kids and emotional AI? Yeah, I think it will have an impact. It's going to take a while to percolate through into the conversations where this stuff needs to be addressed. You know, it's already fed into, in a significant way, into the European proposed AI regulations. I don't see GC25 being taken out of the eventual AI regulations that see light of day. So already it's kind of inputting. I think, you know, it's worth mentioning for, you know, for any listener, you know, who doesn't kind of follow kind of law policy and regulation that closely. Basically, where kind of European policy making goes to an extent, the world certainly takes notice if they don't follow it. Um, so North American companies, for example, typically and often design around GDPR standards. So, you know, the fact that um, GC25 is already in, in, in an influential piece of um, European regulation is really significant, um, you know, and is really quite heartening. You know, in other areas as well, the existence of GC25, again, has kind of really put kind of children kind of front and center of any industry facing discussion about yeah how to design new products um, that involve kind of AI um, but also you know for, for the stuff that I'm working on particularly kind of emotion and empathy based stuff and I would hope as well you know that within industry itself you know although you know they might not be talking about this quite so publicly it's GC25 it's the UNCRC um, it's, you know, it's kind of the biggest kind of human rights framework um, for children. Now that there is something explicitly addressed to technology, to media, and so on and so forth, um, internally, this will be being discussed. So I think although, you know, it hasn't quite got the fanfare that some might have wanted, um, I don't think that should... Um, downplay either A, the significance, um, but B, the impact it will have. Because again, it's work in progress. It's going to take a few years to filter through um, evolution rather than revolution and all of that sort of thing. A big thanks to Professor McStay for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about Dr. McStay's research, the Emotional AI Lab, publications mentioned in today's episode, as well as information on where to send your questions or comments. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, 
with support from the KMDI. Audio mix and sound design by Mika Sestar. Music by Nicholas Manolo. Theme song by Tycom Park. Our logo was designed by JP King. And the artwork for today's episode was created by Kenji Toyuka. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. And thank you for listening.